0: and get 10% off your plan.
2: Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. Hey,
3: Rachel, why don't you think Amazon has cracked the code on selling alcohol online in the
2: US? I mean. Man, I'm thirsty. You'd think it would be easy, but it's pretty complex. The three tier alcohol distribution system is so complicated and it differs state by state by law. And it makes all of this pretty untenable when it comes to selling booze online in the US. You know, people say that one of the reasons Jeff Bezos purchased Whole Foods was so he could actually accelerate online liquor sales. It's
3: kind of crazy that the way to win an e-commerce booze market is to purchase physical stores that have liquor license. It's so much easier outside the U.S. In fact, on Prime Day, we at Profitero found that among the top moving grocery products, booze accounted for 9 out of 10 fastest moving, best selling products, And the 10th was a big-ass Toblerone bar. 4.5 kilos, by the way. Um, Sarah, this sounds like your cart. This might be my cart. <laughs> I'm not as much of a whiskey person as I am a wine person. It was mm. like a lot of whiskey that was moving.
2: But yeah, the combination of booze and chocolate definitely does help. But if Jeff Bezos isn't going to be the one who applies pressure on the system, then the next logical player, at least in the U.S., to shake things up is Southern Glazer. They're the largest distributor, and when we spoke with Adrian Parker, the VP of Global Marketing at Patron, that seemed to be his big bet too. Well, let's see what Adrian has to say while I go
3: grab a drink. (laughs) Hey, Adrian.
1: Wow. Rachel, Sarah, thanks for having me, inviting me to this brave conversation. I think this has been a year of I think a lot of brave moments, I think, for all of us. So I'm very much looking forward to this discussion, but also obviously been a big fan of each of yours uh, profession as well. So I hope after this conversation, we can still hook up and maybe have a Patron toast at some point in the very near future.
2: Amen. I know Zarin needs it. (laughs) Adrian, before we jump in and talk booze, I want you to share with us a little bit about your career narrative, because it's not traditional in the sense for, I'm sure, so many people that work within the Spirits universe. You were marketing executive at a consumer electronics retailer known as Radio Shack. You also did marketing for a B2B company, and now you're an executive at Patron. What's sort of the through line?
1: Yeah, that, it, that's not the traditional route to... No, maybe not. You know, I have to say I'm a blind man on a winding road. Um, you know so early on actually like I'll go take it all the way let's take it all the way back I love theater but I didn't want to be like an actor I enjoyed writing and I was like an editor of a magazine but I wasn't didn't want to be a journalist and you know I love like art and strategy photography and like behavior but um, I didn't want to really want to be a creative or a designer and so I think you know growing up careers like marketing or advertising at an agency or tech like those aren't Career day, like people that come in and present to you. So I think, for me, when I discovered like marketing as this, like it's this fulcrum of all these really cool things. I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't, I didn't have to know it all. I I just fell in love, and so for the past twenty years, I've, I've been really, I say, privileged, really privileged to work with some amazing teams and some brands. I spent ten years in retail brand development, and you know, people say, hey, you got a cool uh, job now, you know, head of marketing for Patron, but I remind you. I was at okay. Radio Shack is not around anymore. Liz Claiborne, uh, yeah, how's that going? And then I was at um, let's call it just for feet, uh, foot action when they went bankrupt. So I have paid my dues. Okay, so yeah, absolutely, I think my job right before I was recruited to come to Patron, I was at Intuit. So I was doing tax and accounting software, and you know, some of you know Intuit. You know, it's a world class company. So some of the smartest people. I've ever worked with or with for. And so when I got the call to come over to Patron, and I've been here about seven years uh, now. It was really cool to take that experience of like strategy, consumer at the heart, empathy, uh, testing, test and learn, lean startup, and apply that to an industry that, you know, for so long, the spirits industry has kind of been really insulated from a lot of real innovative, not thinking in the liquid, the liquid has always been the thing, but in how we do marketing, how we approach it from a technology perspective. So it's really been an amazing journey to take on different roles, like I was an actor, to write new scripts and things like that, but do it while all within the confines of a a really cool uh, marketing team. So I've got an amazing, amazing group
3: that's pretty exceptional and i do believe that there's a direct correlation between being a writer and an artist and being a marketer i myself started out as a journalist and i think storytelling is 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 so much about what we do but also curiosity and and being able to understand the why behind the what and i think for now especially as we're going through this crazy year we have to understand a lot more of the why, like what's driving a lot of these behaviors. You can look at the macro issues. but You can also look at regional issues. Like, are there things that you're seeing in your global role from other markets that you're, you know, bringing over into different markets that may look alike or be on a different trajectory, whether that's, you know, pandemic effect, economic effect, socioeconomic, power distance, like what what are you seeing as, as a global marketer?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd love to say we had this uh, pandemic brief and strategy in our back pocket. So as soon as, you know, February, March hit, we rolled out our tools. But we've been, you know, like a lot of brands, been kind of, you know, learning, I think, on the go, Uh, almost learning by ear. And I think, you know, we've learned that the new normal means different things based on your income, your geography, your ethnicity, and your health situation. And so what we're seeing in one part of the globe could be drastically different from another. A quick example we see in in China and parts of Asia that have started to open back up. So majority, our estimates are about 70, 80% of consumers there. They're back to some sort of pre-COVID level of at least activity, their occasion, some of their drinking, um, etc. But their consumption has changed, right? So luxury demand is a little repressed. So they'll go premium, but those prestige purchases they aren't going ultra, ultra premium just due to a lot of the uncertainty on the economy. Uh, right. And in U S or Europe, we see kind of these three groups, right? So there's the people who are, we call them COVID what's because to them, COVID didn't really happen. Like, it's like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm out. I'm doing my thing.
2: The state of Florida.
1: Yeah, yeah, this entire states are, hey, I'm in Texas, so I, I I can't throw too many stones, right? So, and then the second group that's very cautious. So, they're back in restaurants maybe just a little bit, not at pre-COVID levels. Still mostly off-prem. They're still doing delivery. And then the third group that's confined. Like, they're still doing all ordering. They are not going to a restaurant or a bar, et cetera. And so, we've seen these signals. And I think one of the common trends I think we've noticed in the industry overall and in our category is that uncertainty you know we have a thing we call the fear index and depending on what goes on in a quarter you know from you know social injustice to uh wildfires hurricanes storms earthquakes i mean who would have who would have thought this stuff and so you can see that that uncertainty and that recession and that maybe pre-depression type activity is starting to have people stay closer to home so they still want to entertain. They still want to have moments that matter, right? Uh, they still want to treat themselves as well. And so, I think for a lot of brands, especially ours, because we're we're so well known, at least in the U.S., it's really been about listening to those signals, those human signals, and those macro factors, and then being able to you know push a, a product launch or hey, here here's some things we could do on the ground. So I think we're getting much more specific and tactical with our marketing in a way that has been much more. Consumer at the heart than what we would have been before, so th- there is some silver lining involved, and I think listening to the to the consumer and really having a more empathetic approach to h- how we market.
3: Uh, empathy is definitely one of those things that becomes more and more necessary. It's it's not that it wasn't necessary before; it's just that yeah. failure to empathize is just failure to connect in any way. Like you can't really do shock and awe anymore. You really have to be your true self, your vulnerable self, and really listen.
1: Failure to empathize is failure to connect. I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> That's good.
3: <laughs> yeah, it could be like a little Etsy pillow or something like that. <laughs> I was thinking a little bit about what you were, your, your new audience segmentation, if, if you will, the COVID watts all the way down to, to those that are kind of staying at home. Obviously, that changes your revenue distribution a lot. You're going from the COVID watts would represent, you know, so much of off-prem travel, events, things like that. And those at home may not have been consuming nearly as much as home. So there may not be necessarily incrementality, but there's major shift. How do you think about the shift both in mindset as well as redistribution of even the internal focus? Cause you can have like an off-prem team that's just like super like ready to go. And you'd be like, guys, you got to like back off. I really got to throw all my money into Drizzly. Like, how do you, how do you balance
1: that? Yeah. Excellent question. You know, you know, when it first hit, call it, you know, that March-April time frame, you know, and the, the on-prem restaurant, bars, nightlife, tourism, resort was decimated. I mean, you, you saw, you know, entire category just deflate seemingly overnight. We know about 16% of the American workforce is kind of in that service hospitality range. And so for us, it wasn't a scenario where ranges anywhere from probably about 35 to 40% of our annual volume will come from that on-prem. Right. And even though people are increasing their e com, decom delivery, that's not going to outweigh, you know, an entire segment of, I think, your distribution and your channel offering being gone. And so I'll be honest, I think our first, I'd say, reflexive reaction was for our people. And so one thing we did, you know, Bacardi uh, Patron Tequila is owned by Bacardi Limited. Uh, we got acquired by them two years ago. And so we're the largest privately held, family-owned spirits brand. We're a 158-year-old family company. First thing we did was protect our people and, you know, make some some conservative uh, restructuring in how we invest in our brand so we could protect roles, protect jobs, and really take care of our people. Number two was our partners. It was bartenders, mixologists who were out of work. And so, you know, uh, Patron was one of the uh, early-on brands that not only donated funds and pledge funds, but made sure they were wired into accounts, for you know restaurants and bars to stay open to pay rent families to be able to make an end meet because now that that stuff has changed and so we actually started with the people side of it because that's all we could really focus on it's hard to brief hey how are we going to do virtual Cinco when like you know, every day there's people losing jobs and, you know, record levels of unemployment. And then I'd say on the marketing side though, yeah, we definitely went, I'd say conservative with our approach, but I think aggressive with our activation. So using Cinco as an example, you know, Cinco, is the Super Bowl of tequila. And so for us, we shifted to a kind of a social, virtual led activation where we typically do a really big bang and events and on prem promotions. It all went to, to social. It's uh, interesting because we, you know, surpassed. You know, we sold half a million margaritas in one day, and this was cocktails to go.
2: The what order in Long Island, yeah. <laughs> that was
1: just me, just to you, right? Oh, it's crazy. And, here, and here's a question, right? Like, okay, I ordered a cocktail to go. I reserved it on an app, but it came from a restaurant. But it was delivered. Is that on prem? Is it off? Is that delivery? Like, so we're seeing those channels kind of blur um, as well. So for uh, for summer, and even headed into fall. I think you'll start to see a lot of brands, even outside of Patron, rethink that supply chain. We're not immune to the pandemic, but I think we're absolutely looking at, hey, how, how do we add value to the consumer experience, really put them first? So overnight, a lot of regulations for spirits that we have been arguing and debating for decades in days, those those bad boys were were shifted. And so I think we, we've proved the case that we can be much more frictionless in how we approach.
2: Adrian, as you were talking, you threw out terms like e-com, d The blurring lines between restaurant and delivery. So for everyone who's listening right now, can you kind of describe what is the state of digital commerce and spirits, if you had to describe it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And I'd say we use the term digital commerce just to be that kind of catch-all, right? Because, you know, it's e-com, like, I guess, Amazon. There's e-tail, Right. So it's a kind of more physical, but I'm getting it, you know, via online purchase. But then there's pure players who are online only. There's direct to consumer. And so if I dream in PowerPoint because I, I live in it too much, there's like 10 different pillars. So when you press a button right from like a Drizzly or a, an app, well, actually, they're pulling from a local store. And so Drizzly is just a licensing deal that the store pays them to be able to connect with you and so so much of that blurs we use the the term digital commerce decom just be a catch-all to mean hey, a digital interaction or interface is getting me something i want and i think what we're seeing is that our own so patron our digital commerce portion of our business is up 5x already uh in the first half of our fiscal and so we've seen a stratospheric growth not only in our overall demand of tequila and our products, but also in digital commerce. I think outside the U.S. is interesting because the U.S. is a laggard in many ways in, in online ordering. You go to parts of Asia where, you know, if you try to use physical cash, they'll look at you like funny, like like you're weird. So they've been in, in digital commerce. But I think in the rest of the world, tequila is still a rounding error. And so I, I think what we're, we're doing things in like Amazon UK with store and shopping experiences where you can get Patron, but also the cocktail kit right from Amazon, delivered to your home. In Germany, we're doing the same thing. There's an app called Rappy in in Mexico that is huge. It's kind of like the Uber Eats, mm-hmm. Postmates of like you know uh, Latin America. Massive, right? And and so I think what we're starting to see is that blurring of the lines. You know. You sound old school if you say the word omni-channel. You know, that sounds like, oh, that was like 10 years ago you had a head of omni-channel. And their job was to, like, negotiate between the brick-and-mortar people, merchants, and, hey, here's the digital people and their budgets and priorities. And now it's like, well, we're all kind of – it's all of our jobs to be omni-channel. So I I think we're seeing that shift and that blur in a really powerful way that I hope we protect and we preserve and even accelerate as we go into the next year.
2: So your sales grew 5X online. Does that mean that the team that works <laughs> in digital commerce also grew 5X? Like, how are you operationalizing this?
1: Oh, man, if, if the Patronum Bacardi DCOM team is listening, they're, they're, they're probably having a chuckle. No, I, I'll be honest. I think, and we've got an amazing team that's been able to pull together. Not only do we have a global team, primarily housed in London, who's kind of our, our global kind of um, hub team of digital commerce. And we're and we're on the digital transformation journey as a as a company and enterprise, like like most companies, we're all kind of talking transformation. If you're not in transformation, you're kind of out of business. But I, I think for us, it's really been about shifting uh, priorities. So not only are we staffing up in some key areas, but it's much more of a priority. So if you're in digital commerce, you probably went from one of the last people to be invited to a meeting last year. You're like, oh yeah, don't, don't forget. So now you're running the meeting, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now it's like, okay, how are we driving that? And so as you guys know, DCom, uh commerce, a lot of the platforms, they're, they're channels, but they're also media partners. So I can I can target a consumer, but I can also talk to, you know, uh a person during their experience. And so for us, you know, uh Lauren Brown, Cosby, Serena, Melissa, Lucy, we've got a team of just some rock stars who are really thinking about how do we optimize our investment, search, pay-per-click all of that to really be much more holistic to solve for the consumer experience, but just be much more nimble, much more innovative. You just don't have the time to argue over budgets. You, you really just got to invest at that portfolio level to, to really get the best, I think of, of the deal. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a shifting piece. I won't say we've increased our team 5X, but I would say digital commerce has become a larger part of everyone's job. So I've been getting requests for decom information, from people who have never thought about, I mean, people who have, people who like, hey, give me a print ad in the billboard and now like Drizzly, Saucy, Mini Bar, like Instacart. That's, that's a sea change. And so that's another thing I hope stays, stays around.
3: Well, I think people look at this and they're like, if I don't learn how to, it's gotten to that point where I think there's a, I guess a FOMO, But really just in terms of career baseline knowledge, like if you don't actually know about this kind of stuff right now, you probably will be out of a job in a relatively short period of time. So if they're asking to get schooled on it, that's probably job preservation as much as it is anything else (laughs) at the the time. It's kind of like the the way you you talk about being in marketing for 20 years. How many years did we say it was going to be the year of mobile? Like 12?
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. I used to to have to update the deck every year, like the tipping point, at least smartphones, and then it happens. And, and then, yeah, I remember that.
3: I then you didn't even realize it was that year yeah. and you're like, Oh shit, that happened. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that obviously the, the tipping point on e-com happened because of, of something much more macro than, than anything else. But you're right that the word Omnichannel has been used for well over a decade and it was by far considered to be among the more boring and analytical jobs in marketing and not nearly getting the kind of respect you say you're an integrated cmo
1: yeah
3: oh thank you thank (laughs) you they think you're really important
2: it's about marketing the marketing
1: yeah yeah
2: it's funny adrian when you were uh naming names of your team that i have so much respect for they're all women you have some badass women who are working with you
1: hey i i noticed that I, i i wasn't gonna say that but you know what yeah, they're they're bringing it super talented, and they get it done. We're privileged to have a, a who's who, a, a roster of folks. So yeah, but yeah, they're 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 kicking ass. You're you're absolutely right.
2: You were giving the example of Amazon UK, Amazon Germany. Amazon hasn't made a major stance yet on what their strategy is going to be and their offering around online liquor sales. And you know, when we look at the data at my company. It's clear, at least in the U.S., that consumers don't have any loyalty right now to any given online liquor marketplace, wholesale retailer. Uh, A lot of people don't know even the name Drizzly in certain parts of the country. So what do you see as the opportunity right now for Mr. Jeff Bezos?
1: Yeah, I mean, if I'm Jeff Bezos, and I know they're actively kind of pursuing, you know, liquor license or some kind of affiliate deals, you know, starting in, in the West to try to and get entrenched in, in that opportunity. I would say this. I have a friend who, who works in politics in uh in the D.C. area, and he all often laments on the sheer amount of liquor, alcohol laws, and regulations. It's numerous. It outweighs most of anything else. So you can name 100 things that are more important to your livelihood or your family or anything than alcohol, but if you look at, like, the sheer amount of laws, you know, doing business, a lot of... um people from international say, yeah, doing business uh, in spirits in the U S is like mm-hmm. doing business with 50 different countries because every state has their own like thing. And so if I'm Bezos, yeah, I'm seeing that as an opportunity. You drizzly saucy, Mini bar, people are great partners and they have a great offering and a platform, but not only is the awareness very low there, there's no loyalty because it's largely a commodity based on this brand driven, it's price driven. And you know, I, I think the opportunity For basically for this year, is that we've seen that acceleration of adoption. So depending on what report you you trust, we went from call it nine to ten percent of total retail was e-com to now we're you know 16, 17, maybe up to 18%. And that happened in months. Like so, you see this this COVID spike. And so previously to move six basis points in adoption, that took us six years. We 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 did that in six months, and so I honestly think if, if I'm Jeff or one of the platforms, I'm looking at how do I own not only the um the brand, I want to be the go-to brand, but also own that experience, right? And and I, I think, you know, oftentimes when I'm searching for anything, I go to Amazon first just because it's it's already got my my payment information. I have my address. I don't have to guess at it. And so I, I think you will see this uh continued say gold rush, right? The distributors are starting to make their own platforms now I think you're gonna see multiple partners come in from from different directions as well the brick and mortar won't go away um I just think it, it'll it'll start to evolve I think you'll see this like because being at Radio Shack right Radio Shack was a six thousand store retail chain radio shack would have survived as maybe in a thousand store parts and gadgets thing but radio shack was too big you didn't need six thousand radio shack so at some point there is gonna be this kind of crucible moment where how many partners do you need? How many platforms? And so I, I do think, you know, much of what we saw in the social media landscape with location-based apps and all these offerings, I think you will have a reckoning that's going to happen. And someone tells me, if I'm Mr. Bezos, I'm, I'm going to have a, a seat at that table uh, or be driving the bus, <laughs> whichever analogy you want.
3: Seat <laughs> at the table or driving the bus. All right. Well, if you're driving the bus, you're in charge. If you have a seat at the table, you're a participant. <laughs> Unless you're at the head of the table, it's a different story. Yeah, you're right. So, I mean, it's, it's a big question of who comes out on top and, and does on top even make money? So one of the challenges that has been happening with whether it's grocery delivery or liquor delivery or, or even restaurant delivery is people are fighting for that last mile. At the same time, the last mile is the least profitable. Who should be winning in this space in the first place. Yeah. Like is it, it does the gig economy survive on something like this.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely right. I think, you know, if you look at kind of, Hey, where, where are the margins? cause everybody has to take their little cut in the supply chain, which is why the spirits industry has been totally resistant because it's been the three tier model where, you know, a supplier like Patron has to sell to a distributor or a wholesaler who then goes to a retailer who goes to a consumer And so that that supply chain has been so fragmented uh, deliberately for for so long. And I, I think now, I think if you look at grocery, if you look at convenience, where their business, grocery convenience and digital commerce are where we're seeing channels just spike significantly. And I think there's gonna be some irreversible trends there where, yeah, they're gonna own because they're right here. So I think that convenience is gonna win. My bet would be liquor laws and licensing aside that I think the proximity is gonna matter so much more. And I think it's going to be about the favorite and familiar brands. Right? It's going to be, you know what, the the brands I know and love, it's the brand I want to invest in. Luckily, Patrons on the right side of, of that equation, but it's something we're very much watching closely and trying to at least test and iterate in multiple areas so that as we as we figure it out, we can kind of learn together.
3: Do you think that the distributors would ever get into the D2C business?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Distributors like uh, Southern, Southern Glaze is one of the largest distributors in, in, in the U.S., you know, is rolling out kind of a way, not more focused on the B2B aspect, so direct relationship with uh, restaurants and, and um, call it bars to be able to digitize that experience, et cetera. But, yeah, they've got the know-how, they've got the insights to be able to power that. So I think you'll probably start to see some white-label solutions, you know, much like how Drizzly has done with consumers, why wouldn't uh, a distributor try to work just to become that for a community as well? So yeah, I think you'll the higher you go up the food chain, distributors I think are well placed because they have the manpower, the woman power, but they also have the relationships.
3: Yeah, it's still mostly the manpower. Let's just call it. What
2: it is. <laughs> In marketing world, well, um,
1: yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> we're getting there. Man or woman aside, if Southern Glazer makes a move, I mean, that's 70% of the U.S. market. So that's pretty powerful. That's huge. So Adrian, amongst all this chaos of 2020, you also brought a new product recently to market, the Patron Smart Coaster. What was that about? What business objective is that serving? Like, I I just want to understand more.
1: Yeah, it was a really cool, um, innovative, really a partnership. So Barzis is a technology company. They created a, it's a connected coaster. So it pairs with your mobile device. So you can create the perfect pour. So you literally set the cup or the vessel on this connected coaster and it illuminates to tell you how much of what ingredient to pour you follow along on your smartphone device. And so the insight there is people want bar quality cocktails, but they lack the know-how. You know, our research shows that anything above maybe two or three ingredients and people are like, yeah, that's too hard. As much as we like to think we know how to make drinks at home, most of us don't. But if you can start to simplify that process, you'll start to not only open up their, their palate, open up their opportunity, but because we're at home so much more, there's a treat yourself kind of moment, right? Um, so, yeah, Varsis has been a great partner. So, we have a kit. Uh, now you can order at because thevarsis.com is their uh, website. You can order a Patron margarita kit. Due to aforementioned laws, you actually don't get the bottle of Patron in the kit because we can't like sell that to you. But w- what you get, you get a Barsis connected coaster, connects to Android or Apple. You get a lime squeezer. You get some really nice custom glassware made just for this kit. But also, you know, get some custom salt. And so it's everything you need to make the perfect Patron margarita and look like a bartender. So you don't have to tell your friends that you have this smart coaster doing a lot of work. You, you can still get credit for uh for for making a really great margarita. So yeah, the team, Ali, Serena and team, we we worked on it for probably the past eight, nine months. And so when COVID hit, you know, we had to stop production. And so it actually was delayed a little bit, but now we're excited to bring it to the world. One of the latest and you know, we have a heritage of augmented reality, virtual reality. We were one of the first brands to have Amazon Alexa, Google Home, Microsoft Cortana. Apple AR, like you name it, we've tried that. And not because we're tech- Dude, 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 you, yeah.
3: you're like waking up my entire house <laughs> and you say, well, those memes. mean. You gotta be careful. I know, it's
1: serious. Hey, I tell people all the time, we're not a technology company, we're a tequila company, but we love to use technology to sell a handcrafted story. So it's kind of this really cool marriage of old school, new school.
2: Sarah, should we ask our favorite question? I think it's time. Adrian, what is the bravest thing that you've ever done? It can be personal or professional. Hmm.
1: Bravest thing I've ever done, personal or professional. I mean, I feel like I should say like doing homeschool with three kids, seven and under, but that might be the stupidest thing I've ever done. So let me think about the bravest thing. i tell you, you know what? I'll answer this with the most nervous I've ever been in my life, because I think that is probably a good indicator of the brave. The most nervous I've ever been in my life I was not on a stage or meeting a dignitary or a celebrity. It was not like some crazy job opportunity. It was the day I proposed to my wife. And so I'm a marketing guy and sometimes I'm a little extra. So I decided that she was a first grade teacher at the time. So I decided to get a hundred first graders at her elementary school to help me propose to her on the stage. And so we had a whole production and signs and oh my gosh. And I mean, I knew she would say yes, but it was I mean, I've never been that nervous. My heart was literally jumping out of my chest. One of her friends was like talking like, dude, like she thought I was going to like pass out. I've never been so nervous in my life wondering why did I do all this? I should have just asked at a restaurant or, you know, done something a little simple. But that was probably the most nervous I've ever been. So the bravest thing I would say I've done is propose to my beautiful wife alicia in a very extra way is this
2: on youtube <laughs> Yep.
1: oh you know it's on vimeo actually i'll send you a link okay
2: this is amazing
3: <laughs> can, can we can we share with our audience or just just for ourselves
1: yeah i will warn you you might shed a tear it's a very enduring that's like a 10 minute it's a engagement video but i'll you can fast forward to the part where i actually asked her Hey, I'm not responsible for tears that are shed. Hey,
3: look. Adorable. Storyteller. That's what you are. It's what you do, <laughs> no matter what. Also, bravery and stupidity, they sometimes do go hand in hand. It just kind of depends on whether or not that brave idea was stupid or not. But you can be brave and stupid at the same time. Yeah. For sure. That said, you know, you have no choice. you got to school your kids. So what do you gonna do? I love it.
2: Well, Adrian, we know you have three small children and a lot of booze to sell. So we truly appreciate your time. I freaking love your energy. You can feel it through the mic. Thank you so much.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I think I have booze to sell because of the three small children. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to following this podcast, Brave Commerce for your future episodes and congratulations on what you're doing. Really big
3: fan. Thanks for listening.
2: Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts.
3: And don't forget to share this link with a friend much fun you killed it yeah we're just catching
0: up right i love it i love it hey there are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company meet viral growth your one-stop shop for video content and audience building imagine growing your brain organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours with viral growth it's a breeze they handle the brainstorming scripting and editing while you simply just hit record And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan